This is Invest Talk. Independent thinking, shared success. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Thursday, August 31st, 2023 edition. Yep, it is the end of August. We are through eight months of the year, two thirds of the year. And to celebrate, we have Luke Guerrero with us. Also, it's Thursday, too. So, welcome back, Luke. Thank you, Justin. Now, we are here to help you become a better investor, and we're going to do that by blending a mix of educational material and actionable content. And, of course, your contributions are most important to the show in the form of questions and comments that really drive this show. Luke and I can talk about whatever's on our mind, and we certainly do that uh, throughout the day all the time. But ultimately, this show is not about us. It's about you. So we encourage your calls at 888-99-CHART. Now, we're going to dig into the market here in a bit and run down some show topics right after we answer our first caller question now. Hey, uh, Steve and Justin. This is Adam from Texas. I was calling about Roku to see what you thought as a uh, possible short for that. The ticker symbol is R-O-K-U. Looking forward to the answer on the show. Thanks again. All right. Roku, one of the growth darlings during the pandemic as a lot of people were staying home and watching on their Roku devices, watching streaming services. And their business did fairly well. They actually turned a profit in 2021, but that was fairly fleeting. They made $1.71 in 2021, barely lost money in 2020. Uh, but lost $3.62 last year, expected to lose even more, $4.41 this year. Now, the trends in analyst estimates are getting a little bit better, but still in deep negative territory. But the stock has rallied this year with uh, a lot of the other growth names from a low back in pretty much the start of the year, right around 38 Now we're at $81 a share, but that's drastically down from the all-time high back in early 2021, uh, near $500 per share. So even though it's rallied nicely throughout this year, you're still down about 85% since those highs. Uh, Luke, this is a name that a lot of people love, but obviously the business fundamentals has lagged the enthusiasm of investors. Yeah, certainly. You know, when I look at this company, one thing that strikes my eye is, uh, unless this is incorrect, they have zero debt. Well, it's... Um, which is good in this environment, especially for some of those names that you mentioned are growth darlings. So that's something that doesn't necessarily signal to me that it would have the same effect as other growth darlings in the market as interest rates rise. Yeah, but that's all because they just issue more shares. Right? If you can that's just, true as if well. You, if you can just continually issue more shares, uh, then you don't need to raise debt. And in 2017, they had 94 million shares outstanding, and now they have 141 million shares outstanding. So they've grown the share count by 50% in five years. That's a, a pretty brisk pace. Now they've slowed that down, obviously, because the, the share price has, has cratered since. Um, but 
you know, it, I think it's more about the valuation here. It's still about $11.5 billion market cap. Price sales, three and a half, which is not as egregious as uh, some of them you see in the 20 plus range still. Um, but free cash flow is negative, and they, all the profitability metrics are very negative. So, yes, they aren't uh, buckling under the weight of major debt problems, but they are when it comes to cash flow problems. Yeah, no, that's certainly true. I'm looking at their price to book value. It's it's decidedly lower than its competitors. As mm -hmm. you mentioned, that some of the other companies that are in the same field have sort of runaway valuations, if you will. Mm -hmm. But the question itself was, should we short it? Mm -hmm. And to me, if you're going to short a security, pick one that is more obvious to be affected by the environment that we're in. Yeah, and well, I, I would say is a lot of their business is selling ads. And if you're going into, if the economy, maybe we have a recession next year, you know, we've kind of dodged it, I think, this year. And that's pretty clear that that's, that's going to be the case because uh, I don't think we're going to have negative GDP this quarter. So that means we've dodged a recession in 2023, but 2024 is still up in the air and that could certainly weigh on those sales. Now, what I would say is I, I hate, I think the business is terrible. I've, I've, I've never thought Roku was a, a great, a great business overall, despite the hype, but technically you know, it's fine. This recent, pull, recent pullback certainly is something to worry about, but it hasn't broken any major moving averages, any major support levels, which there was a, a good support right around 75, and it's bounced up back up to 81. So until, until it breaks 75, I don't see a structural shift. Actually, I would say 68. That's actually the, the, the real major support around 68. If it breaks that, then I would say it's rolling over. Um, but until then, I'd probably hold off on a short just because, like you said, Luke, there's, there's, they don't have a lot of debt. And, you know, things are, are running along okay. Longer term, I think this is a, a short for a three to five year time period. I don't think it's higher in three to five years. Oh, I definitely agree with you there. Yeah. So it depends on your time horizon. Uh, near term, not ripe for the picking on the short side, but over the next three, five years, I think so. All right. Thanks for the call. Now, keep in mind that today, as always, we are going to give you some useful data and our unbiased perspective, and we have a lot of ground to cover over the next 45 minutes, and we have a lot planned. One is in regards to our main focus point, and that is adding dividend stocks to a portfolio. Does it improve performance? They did a study over the last 25 years or so, and we're going to look at the results and give you the the take, our take at least, of what those numbers are ultimately saying. We also have some other topics on the docket. One is in regards to dollar stores and recent earnings out of Dollar General and what that says about the consumer. Also, demand for oil, not just worldwide, but domestically, they're exceeding expectations. And we're going to talk about those numbers and why. And then lastly, our favorite, I won't say our favorite topic, one topic, one of our favorite topics, and that would be Evergrande. So we're going to dig into that story. We also have some voice bank questions ready to play. One is in regards to Boeing and the other, the ProShares Ultra Short Real Estate ETF. All right, now let's dig into the market today. It was a kind of a, a mixed to down day. You had small caps eking out a tiny gain. Mid caps were the worst performer down 0.2% and large caps down about 0.1%. Uh, you had the PCE number. A lot of economic data actually came out today. And I was expecting the market to react in a big way to something, but it didn't really, Luke, right? There, there's there's so much. You had PCE data. You had initial jobless claims. You had personal 
income and spending. There's just a lot, but the market didn't seem to want to react to it. What was your take? Yeah, well, generally speaking, things seem to be pretty in line with consensus estimates. Core PC deflator was four basis points away. Initial jobless claims is only a 7,000 difference. So I think because uh, the release of the numbers were in line with expectations generally across the board, there wasn't much for the market to react to. Yeah, so uh, market kind of priced in these numbers overall. And then we turn tomorrow to a more important number, at least for a market movement typically, and that is the non-FAR payrolls number. The estimates is what, around 171,000? Is that correct? 170,000. Okay, 170,000. And that was on the back of uh, a jolts number that was uh, down considerably. And then you had the, was the ADP number on Wednesday? Was that? Yeah, the ADP number on Wednesday, yep. that, that came in at 177,000. So that all pretends to a weaker jobs market. And if you look at last month, it was 187,000. So they're looking for a small uh, deceleration. So we'll see what that looks like. You also have the unemployment rate, obviously, construction spending tomorrow, and average hourly earnings. And that's always interesting, I think, for future Fed policy. So uh, a mixed bag in today's market really looking for the data tomorrow. All right, now we're heading into a break and I welcome your finance and investment questions right now. No question is too simple or too complex. You set the agenda each day on Invest Talk. So give us a call at 888-99-SHARP. Justin Klein talks about the KPP Financial Premium Newsletter. I want to remind you that this is a time where you probably need some guidance and you're tuning in to try to get our view of the markets. And we only have an hour here. And, and sometimes the way I distill each day can be maybe not enough, maybe not enough time. And so our premium newsletter is a great tool for especially newer investors trying to learn some things. The KPP Financial Premium Newsletter comes to your mailbox every Saturday. Learn how to analyze the market, learn what the economic numbers mean, learn how to manage a portfolio, maybe get an idea of what are good companies to be at least looking at. Maybe you don't buy it today, but you should always have a watch list of companies that, hey, these are interesting, these have good businesses. And if they get the right price, maybe I should buy them. So our newsletter is a great tool for that. Subscribe anytime at investtalk.com. Justin Klein is here and ready to take your calls live. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Let's go talk to Gene. He is in Las Vegas, and he wants to talk about BTGB2 Gold. You own it or looking to buy it? Yeah, Justin, I own it. Um, and before I get to uh, B2 Gold, I just got to thank you guys. I called you guys a couple weeks ago in regards to Savitas Resources. And, um, I mean, this thing is just making new 52-week highs, it seems like, week after week. So I, I, I had to pull my initial cost basis off the table because it grew to almost 25% of my portfolio. So I, I, I want to thank you guys for that. Um, but, yeah, I'm calling in regards to B2 Gold. I know this is a junior miner that you guys have liked in the past. And it seems like they're dealing with some geopolitical issues right now in Mali with the president of Mali signing a bill going from um, 
20% stake all the way to 35 on their Socola mine. Um, so I was just calling to find out what you guys thought going forward. It's nearing my cost basis right now. I'm right about $3 a share. Um, so I'm, I, I did... I did hold a couple hundred shares, but I felt like it was underperforming, especially when gold was above 2000 and out. Um, so I did liquidate about 800 shares. Um, but I just wanted to, you know, get your guys' take on forward guidance. I know they, they just got a permit in their own jurisdiction in Canada, about a 80-kilometer length of five-block stack minerals. Um, so I don't know. I know, I know they're dealing with some headwinds, but they also have some tailwinds involved too. I just feel like it's kind of cheap right now. Um, I just wanted to get your guys' takes and thoughts on, on B2 Gold and if you guys still liked it. Uh, I'm not sure. It definitely wasn't recently where we liked, uh, this name. Um, you know, their profitability is generally pretty good compared to the rest of the industry. So that's kind of the, the, the best thing you can say about it. And the fact that they don't have any debt on their balance sheet. So they have a good they have a, they have a good clean balance sheet. The issue here, and I always say this with the any of the gold miners, is the jurisdiction matters. And you're seeing this right now with the with the problems there. And they have three mines. One is in Mali, Namibia, and the Philippines. And I think the Philippines are, are relatively stable, but Mali and Namibia, not so much. And so, you know, when you're looking at any of these gold miners, you have to take that into account. And that's why this is struggling so much. So I would certainly move on. When we're looking at miners, we want the mines to be in safe, pretty much Western jurisdictions that uh, are, you know, withhold up. Hold the rule of law, where you're not going to get shaken down by the the government or uh, by some sort of rogue faction. Um, you know, not not a lot of strikes, things like that. Those can derail these types of mining projects and make them much bigger headaches than and most people realize. And so, I would be moving on and looking for. If you want gold mining exposure, look for ones that have mines in more stable regions, and they're, they're most of their revenue comes from their mine in Mali, not their Indonesia or their Philippines mine. So uh, I would sell it and move on. The technicals are obviously uh, poor and, and drastically underperforming the industry. So definitely a sell for me. All right. Now we're going into a quick break. Please remember that you can call anytime and leave your question on the Invest Talk Voice Bank. Or if you're listening to the live stream, you can call right now at 888 chart. The stock market is constantly changing, and serious investors know that they need to modify their portfolio assets to fit the times. And now, with more than 50 million downloads, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley reaffirm their commitment to providing unbiased finance and investment guidance here on InvestTalk. 888-99-CHART. Let's go talk to James in New York asking about PayPal. Do you own it or looking to buy it? I'm looking to buy it eventually. Um, I'm thinking maybe it hopefully has stopped falling or won't fall much further, but I think probably a rebound is, is imminent with PayPal, um, at least maybe in the short 
or medium term. But what do you think? Well, first off, I always say hope is not a strategy. So you never want to hope it it oh, for sure. uh, reverses. So, uh, but it technically, there's nothing technically that says it's going to reverse. Uh, you had a big drop in uh, early August. I'm sure that was on earnings, I would imagine, and has not recovered. It was trading in pre-earnings in the low 70s, fell that day, the next day into the mid-60s, and that kind of remains where we're at, 62.51 at the close today. Now, if you look based on current earnings, about $5 per share expected this year, $62 share price, that's a pretty low multiple, 12.5 forward-looking multiple, modest debt profile, but to me, the issue here and what, me, what, what the chart is telling me is that there's a lot of potential disruption with the FedNow platform that the Federal Reserve is starting to, uh, you know, try, trying to uh, work on and roll out. Uh, so that's my issue is the chart is not lining up with these fundamentals, even though analysts are upgrading their, their projections for earnings. So it looks cheap, but... In my eyes, it's a value trap because of that Fed now risk hanging over its head. What do you think, Luke? Yeah, no, I certainly agree. Looking at its margins, its EBIT margin is 16.5% for this type of company. That's that's pretty low. It's low relative to its peers as well. But generally speaking, this is something that I say all the time when, when callers ask about it, is you shouldn't catch a falling knife. Mm-hmm. If you even pull the chart back to about three years, it's been it's been falling for almost three years now. So if you're looking to invest in it, keep an eye on it, hold on. Don't do it just yet, but uh, certainly now I wouldn't say is the time. Yeah, you really want to wait for the chart to confirm the fundamental analysis, and this is absolutely not doing that. And I think it's pretty clear why. I mean, I I can't see really anything else uh, because it is, like you said, it's still a good business. It may be not as good as some of the other ones within the space, but it's still a good business. It's still growing a lot less than it had been. It's a couple of years ago, it was growing in the teens. Now its revenue growth is kind of mid-single digits. So that growth slowdown uh, means a multiple contraction, not to this degree, because remember, it peaked around $300 per share. So it's down 80%. Um, so I would wait for some technical strength here. Otherwise, stay on my watch list. All right. Thanks for the call. Now, my focus point looks in the story behind this question. Does adding dividend stocks improve portfolio performance? And we have a lot of investors, Luke, on this show that are always calling about dividends. And I think this is a very pertinent and important topic to uncover. Now, there are two reasons people invest in dividend-paying stocks. One is to improve total performance of their portfolio. And the other is to take the cash, cash flow and spend it. And the big question is, does adding dividend stocks really improve portfolio performance overall? And so, and there's certain ways to improve performance. One is higher total returns. Now, that's what most people think about only, right? Just total returns. But what about lowering volatility? And what about diversification? All three can be benefits to you as an investor, some more than others. Now, what they did is they looked back at the track record over 25 years. And this is my first issue, Luke, with this, is it's only looking at 25 years. And the first part of that period, value stocks, which dividend investing is tends to be a, 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 a good proxy for value investing. Uh, 
the first part of that time period, it did fairly well uh, to call it 2000 and 2007. That's when value outperformed growth in a big way. And then basically from 2007 all the way till 2022, call it 15 years, you had growth outperforming. So naturally, you would think that two thirds of that time you had growth outperforming a third of that time value outperforming, you would think that it should underperform. But the reality is, the dividend indexes outperformed the Vanguard total stock market by nearly 1% over that entire period. I think that's pretty impressive. I think that is impressive too, but certainly when you're looking at any type of analysis, you want to see how they found the sample. And what they point out here is something that's really important to me is the survivorship bias of only picking funds that survived. So when you are looking at doing an analysis of some sort of investment strategy, like you mentioned, it's important to look at the whole sample. Otherwise, you may be doing something called data mining, finding a certain time period over which you can prove your hypothesis. The second is, are you biasing the data inherently from the start? And that's something that I see here. Well, my question is, how many dividend indexes appeared in that time and then went away? That's a good question. I, I certainly don't know that. But. I, I, I can see that on the fund side because they did out, they did analyze dividend funds, mm -hmm. and I'm sure there are ones that uh, closed up shop over that time due to poor, poor performance or whatever. But mo most indexes don't just disappear. Correct. Right? Uh, especially over a 25-year period, especially in an area that is generally well-followed, well, well, uh, well followed, like dividend investing. Um, so after the break, we're going to look at not just performance, we'll look at the other factors that can uh, really pay off, right? Now we're heading into a break, so give us a call at 888-99-CHART. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It is official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, Bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Each day, Invest Talk listeners submit their finance and investment questions via phone or email. Would you like your question to be put near the top of the list? Just take a minute or two to leave a review and rating for Invest Talk at iTunes. And be sure to include a brief question with your iTunes review comments. Now, before the break, we touched on the fact that the broad Dividend indexes over the last 25 years have 
outperformed the total stock market index. And we can argue once again, survivorship bias, but I would argue like I did before the break, I think there's not, there probably aren't a lot of dividend indexes that close up shop because of bad performance or, or for any other reason. Um, so I think this is a pretty good indicator that dividend investing, even at a time where the majority of uh, those years, non-dividend stocks did better, dividend investing still was, was pretty good. Now, another way that you can argue dividend investing is superior is lower volatility. And we know that's typically true. Most dividend payers have lower volatility than the non-dividend payers. And that's because typically of business strength, right? They have good margins and cash flow, so they can pay those dividends consistently. And if they look over those 25 years, the dividend indexes had about an 8% lower standard deviation than the Vanguard total stock market index. So on the performance side, I would give it a thumbs up. And clearly on the risk side, it definitely lowers risk. Would you agree with that part at least? No, I certainly agree with that part. Yes. Uh, I do want to add the caveat and we can discuss it after we talk about the funds as well and what that showed us about whether or not the fact that they are dividend payers is what's going on here or if there's something else that allows them to be dividend payers that is rather driving their performance. The quality Indeed. of their dividend payers. Yeah, that, that, that's really what this is, uh, what the, when you dig into the details, remember they're looking broadly and then and, and, and drilling down. And the they even say this performance of these strategies vary greatly and uh, and even, and you can see that by the way dividend uh, funds pick their their uh, their stocks. So, for example, the MSCI USA High Dividend Yielding Index over the last twenty five years annualized return was only six point six one percent versus the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index of seven point nine three, as opposed to the S and P Dividend Aristocrat Index that has not just focus on the high payers, but the ones that have consistently grown their dividend consistent over time, that one's up nearly 10% over the last 25 years. So it's, as we say all the time, when people call in about these high dividend payers, it actually does not pay to buy the high dividend payers in the market. Correct. You know, a good example of that is when people think about growing businesses, it doesn't pay to purchase the businesses that are growing assets at a unsustainable, ridiculous level, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Typically in these type of situations, you want to exclude the outliers because yep. you want to look for sustainable dividends driven by well-run companies. And if somebody is year after year sending out way more capital than they should be able to, it's not going to be sustainable. And if you are a dividend aristocrat and you're able to increase your dividend consistently over, is it 20 or 25 years, the aristocrat? I think it's 25 I think years. It's 25 years. So that means you've gone through probably at least two recessions, maybe three over that time period. And so you have a very quality business. And that's what we always say is focus on the business, not the dividend. Do not chase the dividend. Otherwise, you will be, you will be sorry. And the data uh, pretty much backs this up. And so... The third benefit here, though, is portfolio diversification. And when the broader indexes, last year is a good example. Most dividend and value funds did much better than the indexes because the indexes are leaning towards the growth side. We've talked about that many times. And so if you own maybe the index plus a value fund or a dividend fund, then your diversification allowed you to 
have a much steadier uh, portfolio over the last 18 months, especially. So I think it definitely works as a portfolio diversifier if you're just indexing. But if you are, if you have other value funds, I don't think a dividend-focused strategy is going to give you much, much diversification. Does that make sense? No, that's fair. I think the, the bottom line for me is, is dividends an input or an output? Should you be trying to invest in securities because they are dividends? Or is it that you should be looking for companies that are sustainable, have good profits, have good value? And the outcome of that is you're going to tilt towards companies with dividends. I think too many people try and chase and have the input to be dividends when dividends should be the output of what you're creating and structuring. Exactly. And some studies have – I've read different studies on why companies that pay dividends – tend to outperform. I think definitely it's quality going, going back to what is, what, what inputs should you, or what inputs should you be looking for profitability and good businesses, but also it creates discipline within the organization because no CEO wants to be in charge of a company that has to cut their dividend. And so they don't just throw money at anything. They don't just lever up their balance sheet. Uh, on whims. They do that uh, by understanding their business, understanding longer-term strategy, and don't misallocate capital nearly as often. And so I think that's another reason why dividend investing uh, tends to work as well. So I think the answer here is that even in an environment where two-thirds of the time they sh uh, growth outperformed dividend investing over a 25-year period, it still did better. So what's going to happen when you get at a time where value is outperforming two-thirds or, or three-quarters of the time? Uh, I think it's going to do even better. So it's clear here, dividend investing works, but not chasing dividends. All right, now let's keep things moving and pivot back to the Talk Voice Bank. The number never changes. It's 888-99-CHART. Hi, Stephen, Justin. Love the show. Appreciate getting to listen to it and really appreciate you answering caller questions. This is Francis in San Francisco. And I have a question about ticker symbol SRS is an ultra short real estate ETF. And I was curious about what you think regarding purchasing a small position and going forth with rising interest rates, the current economic environment, and possibly any uh, defaults on mortgages. So would love your opinion. Thanks again for uh, taking caller questions. I love the show. Well, the first thing is this is a leveraged ETF. All leveraged ETFs should be used for trading purposes only. That's all. That's you don't want to hold these long term. Doing the tracking error, the the fees that uh, the management fees that are very high, but also the PTSD that people have from 08 is still deeply ingrained, and it causes these people. I see this all the time on YouTube. How the Marlsing market's going to crash, and. That's all they want to talk about. And they get a ton of views. There are, there are channels where people post videos once, twice a week, and they get hundreds of thousands of views. And every single one is just talking about how the housing market's going to crash. And it hasn't. And it's pretty clear why. And it's pretty clear if you actually look at the data, the housing market's not going to crash, especially not overnight. Now, is it going to have a kind of longer-term corrective period, underperform inflation? Probably. But this isn't 08. This is very different. And so I see no reason why you'd want to be invested in, in this particular ETF. Look for something else. The, the 
catalyst for a huge downturn in the economy is very unlikely to be real estate. What are your thoughts, Luke? Yeah, I agree. I think, like you said, it's recency bias in that people are used to their most recent experience and not all recessions are triggered by or include credit events like 2008 did. So every recession, every issue, every downturn tends to be a different problem. So I I wouldn't say that you should uh, put any money long term in an ultra short real estate ETF. Yeah, it's definitely not a good long term or short term investment. So Run far away and don't sit there and watch a YouTube channel and think that uh, the housing market's going to crash imminently like it did in 08. Very different dynamics. People have locked in 3% mortgages to people that have have jobs, have income. And I think I heard, I heard a crazy stat the other day. 40% of homes in the U.S. are paid off. Boomers. 40, boomers, yeah. You know? And so, and and I think a big product of that uh, that is the financial crisis. People were, yeah, they were scarred. And Absolutely. instead of levering up balance sheets in order to buy more real estate and buy all these uh, rental properties, many of them did the opposite. They paid down their debts and, and their mortgage and retired with no mortgage. And that's what we always recommend is, is trying to get to, to no mortgage in retirement. So not a shock uh, to see that number. So no, the housing market's not imminently crashing. My question there is out of curiosity, was that number looking at residential properties owned by single families or did that also include residential properties that are owned by investment companies? I don't know. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't look that deeply yeah. uh, at that and I didn't, Try to find out that question, Um, but it's a good question. That'd be interesting to see. Yeah, I'll definitely try to find that report. All right. Let's fit another caller question now. This one came in earlier at 888-99-CHART. Hey, folks. This is Matthew calling from Kentucky. I love your show. Appreciate all the advice. Uh, Ticker symbol that I'm looking at is uh, Boeing BA. It's something that I've been invested in for quite some time. Just wanted to hear your advice uh, on that as far as uh, averaging down and uh, holding my position. All right, this is Boeing, a company that uh, levered up its balance sheet to buy up tons of shares pre-pandemic, and then the whole whole world went crazy, and the aviation industry was turned on its head, and they got a bailout. How much was their bailout? Was that $8 billion? Oh, I'm not sure off the top of my head. There's been so many bailouts in the past 20 years. It's tough to keep track. Exactly. Uh, But they hemorrhaged money in during the pandemic and they're still losing money they're expected to turn a profit finally again next year they obviously had the was it 737 max is that was that the issue, one with the software issue yes and that's that's not through the pandemic that's just bad management um so you know i i think their management team is terrible their balance sheet remains pretty bad and you know, will the demand for planes still be the same now that business travel is, I think, permanently impaired? I, I, I see no reason to be owning this in my mind, Luke. What are your thoughts? I agree. I'm looking at their debt overview. And one of the things that I, I have stressed recently is that you got to be careful of companies that have a substantial amount of debt coming due in the next couple of years. And so mm-hmm. Boeing has $8 billion in debt, which isn't a lot relative to how much they hold that's mm-hmm. coming due in the next couple of years. They'll have to roll that over into higher interest rates. But also their five-year credit default swap spread has up to 220 basis points, which is relatively high. That is a metric that is going to tell you 
what does it cost essentially to insure mm-hmm. uh, against default of a company? So if that if that's getting higher, that's not necessarily a good thing. So certainly right now, I would not uh, invest in this company. Yeah, and if you look at the technicals, they've certainly rallied from the lows in the fall, but you're starting to get some MACD divergence and the momentum certainly slowing in a big way. It looks like it's ready to to roll over. It did test the 100-day moving average uh, last week and has bounced since then, but today big down day in a overall flat market, right? Over down two and about two and a half percent on the day. So I, absolutely, I'd actually just sell it. I, I would not be buying more. I would sell it, move on. I think there's much better opportunities for your money. All right, let's talk a little bit about the consumer. And we are in the tail end of earnings season. And Dollar General had a big drop. Uh, was that yesterday? A couple of days ago? And on earnings. And they said they cut their outlook for the year amid signs that c- customers are pulling back on their purchases. And they reported slowing sales and said its inventory of unsold goods is piling up. So they're going to have to sell a lot of those goods at uh, discounted prices, even more discounted than they typically sell them at, which is going to hurt profit margins and might even lose money in the near term. And they're seeing theft on the rise as well. So this is a pretty good indicator of where the consumer is at because the dollar dollar general is a pretty big chain. Let me see how many stores they have. About 19,000 stores in 47 states. So they this is a wide swath of uh, the, the, the population. And you know, does this say that the pandemic savings are running out, especially for those in the low end? Yeah, no, it does. I think one thing to note is that typically stores like this that have goods, but also groceries and necessities, groceries and necessities is where they're making their uh, worst margins. So as consumers are losing a lot of their spending power because they have to shift over to buying those essentials, even if aggregate sales, the nominal sales number is flat or up, if it's shifting towards those low margin ones, they're making less money. It's becoming a less profitable business. Yeah, and if you look at some of the other retailers, Five Below, another value chain uh, catering to teens and tweens, and they also cut their full-year outlook, same challenges. Uh, Consumer pulling back and loss and damaged goods and theft. And I think this is something you're seeing pretty widespread here. What do you think this does to, and this happens a lot in, I think, the bigger cities, right, where there's just more people living below the poverty line, or there's a lot of theft, and do you think the com- these companies are going to shut these stores? How, what, what does it do to the retail landscape if so many of them are citing these thefts as an issue. Well, you have to keep in mind, I I think a lot of this is a red herring because you have to keep in mind that when they talk about shrinkage, damage, and theft, they group that number together, but that theft could be external theft or it could be internal theft, Mm -hmm. right? So if you take a look at, I believe I saw this the other day, if you take a look at shrinkage relative to total retail sales, it's pretty much where it's been the past five years. So I'm not sure how much to make of it. I don't know if it's anecdotal. I think we're going to need more data to be able to find out. Well, and that's why I say it's not just one company that's saying it. A lot of companies are saying it. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how they 
react to this trend. Now, this is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein with Luke Guerrero, and we have one goal here each and every weekday, and that's to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom. And our work continues after this final break. So if you're going to call, you want to do that right now at 888-99-CHART. to grow and protect. So get your finance and investment questions together and call Steve Peasley and Justin Klein. They're ready with their unbiased answers. InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. Hey guys, just want to get your thoughts on Uber, ticker symbol U-B-E-R. I'm just looking for this for a long-term play, probably at least 10, 15 years. I'll get your thoughts. All right, Uber, I don't think I need to tell everybody what Uber does, but they finally are expected to earn nice profits this year. Dollar per share expected. They made 18 cents last quarter, lost 8 cents a share in the first quarter. No dividend, uh, a decent amount of debt on its balance sheet. $100 billion market cap after this run from a low of $20 per share last summer, and now it's at $47. So, up pretty dramatically, still off its all-time high or in the in the low 60s, but certainly in an uptrend. The technicals are fine. Do you think this warrants the type of forward-looking multiple, Luke? Uh, because it always kind of dumbfounds me how much money they had been losing. When you know what is their true overhead as a business? Don't get me started. Uh, <laughs> but Uber for me is one of those interesting companies when you're talking about a 10 to 15 year play where you want to look at the trends within the industry. So Uber was started and their idea was let's lose money. Let's make people use Uber. Let's make people dependent on Uber. Let's raise prices. Problem is, is a lot of competition came in. The other problem is, is they use independent contractors and a lot of states started regulating that. So although they are finally about to hopefully maybe turn a profit, I think that their woes from a legislative perspective are hardly over yet. I think that especially within uh, the car industry, say what you want about full service driving or full, whatever they call it, FSD, right? The, mm -hmm. the, the, the driverless cars. Mm -hmm. um, there are real plays going on, right? And so if you're talking about a 10 to 15 year period, this could be the point at which dynamics are completely different within that specific subset of the industry in 10 to 15 years. And the trends within the labor market is that labor is harder to get. And the bargaining power of Uber drivers is a lot higher than uh, – will continue to be higher like, year after year. Unions are having a moment. Yeah. Unions are, are getting concessions all over the board. And if you think that that's not going to happen in this industry, I think you're wrong. And they are have operated in kind of this gray area, the, the sharing economy. There wasn't a lot of regulation around it early on because it didn't exist. And I think every state and every jurisdiction is, is starting to – find ways to regulate it. And typically an Uber or a Lyft are running a lot of those costs. So uh, there's certainly some regulatory headwinds, I think, going forward. I think after this run, it's probably not a good price to be buying no. now. Uh, the technicals are still overall solid, but they are, the momentum has been weakening. This uh, recent drop in, uh, in, in August, it's 
the MACD is rolling over. Uh, once again, the momentum's rolling over. So in back in the 20s, I think this is probably a reasonable value. But here in the high 40s, uh, I would pass on it. You don't often see a 10 basis point EBIT margin, but here we go. Here we go. All right. Well, let's uh, let's touch a bit on oil demand, obviously kind of related to Uber. And what's interesting here is that the demand for oil here in the U.S. is out stripping the EAIA's expectation going into the year. And a lot of this had to do with the expectation that we'd have to be in a recession this year. Clearly, that has not happened. and But it is a mixed bag. So gasoline and jet fuel demand both are outperforming in a big, big way. So that's the consumer going on trips and traveling. That ebbing of demand for travel didn't really materialize too much this year. But on the industrial side, the demand for distillates failed to meet expectations. So that goes back to the ISM manufacturing index continues to be in contractionary territory, whereas the services side, Uber, right? If you're if you're if you're paying for an Uber, that would be a service. And that continues to do very well. So overall, the oil prices I don't think have broken down despite a slowing economy because we just continue to chug along. It's more evidence of the strong consumer. How long can it last is a good yeah. question. So kind of two sides to this, going back to that, that uh, Dollar General story, that yes, so far this year, the demand for these things has held up, but uh, maybe going into the back half of the year, that may be turning, and that could certainly shift Fed policy. Only time will tell. Only time will tell. All right. I'm Justin Klein with Luke Guerrero, and this completes another Invest Talk program. Steve and I thank you for listening, and we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review, and it's official. We have now surpassed the 55 million download mark since it all began. So thank you all for that. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening, and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART.